Welcome to the Bio Breakdown Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Banity. This week, we're joined by producer Max. Hello, everyone. And special guest, Monet Gomez. Hello. Monet, would you, would you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, before we get into kind of the research side of things? Sure. So currently I'm living in Auburn, Alabama. I'm pursuing my PhD in wildlife sciences, but I'm originally from Fresno, California. So I got my undergraduate degree in biology at Fresno State. Awesome. So what, you know, what got you to pursue biology in school and then eventually as a career? Did you have any kind of like defining moments or our jobs growing up that really piqued your interest? I can't say that I've had any specific moments where I knew that I wanted to go into wildlife research. However, I know that I've always been just fascinated by the outdoors. Growing up, we were really close to the Sierra Nevada mountains, so I got to go up there and go camping quite a bit. And I was always just fascinated by any animals that I got to see, any signs of behavior that I got to see, And as I grew up, I realized that the path working with animals changed from me wanting to be a veterinarian to me wanting to be a zookeeper to now me um, actually doing wildlife research. But uh, so so if I remember correctly, you have worked in zoos before, though, right? Yeah, I did. Um, I worked in the education department of the Fresno Chaffee Zoo for a few years, and I did that after volunteering with them through the end of high school, through halfway through undergrad. Um, Yeah, it was a great job, and I got to work a lot with the public, and during that time, I realized that I wanted to go more into scientific research, but on the other ends of things, you could also see how the public kind of interpreted interpreted conservation and just their natural interests in wildlife. So it was good for me to get that perspective coming from outside the science field as to what people really want to know and what they care about. That's that's awesome. I mean, it sounds like you really kind of like got, off, got after it pursuing like a hands-on opportunity coming out of high school. I don't think a lot of people uh, do that, you know, for whatever reason. Uh, laziness, busyness, you know, they haven't figured out what they want to do, but but that's awesome. You took that chance, I guess. Um, and it's also, I think it's uh, good to hear you bring up kind of the, the public engagement side of zoos in conservation. Uh, we just had on another guest who, a uh, significant part of his career, he spent working in zoos, and we discussed that at, at length, but I think a lot of people underestimate the value of zoos and conservation and stuff so it's cool to hear you say that yeah i absolutely agree and definitely value our zoos especially the aza system here in the u.s right because if people don't you know if people don't care about animals then you know why would they work to make sure that they're conserved and not driven to extinction and an easy way easy way to get people in, you know, engaged with it is firsthand experience, like seeing animals in the zoo. Um, and also you brought up like the AZA system where the zoos have to contribute to conservation a certain amount. Otherwise they, they not accredited, right? Yeah. And I believe uh, they recently incorporated research requirements 
as well. I guess I think, maybe don't include that. I want, maybe want to check that. <laughs> well, I think you're right. You know, we're not going to get sued. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so you kind of while you were working there, uh, and you did you would it be fair to say you kind of like had realized like this is what you wanted to pursue long term, or was it just kind of a natural step? Uh, I don't know exactly what I want to do, but I'm going to go to college, and this is, you know, my first option. I would say more of the latter. Um, when I started my undergraduate degree, I kind of knew what a, a job in wildlife biology consisted of. Um, I didn't grow up hunting or fishing or anything, so I wasn't very familiar with the fish and wildlife system. Um, so that was all kind of new to me coming out of high school. But as I went through undergraduate, um, that was something that became more of a clear career path. And the more and more I got interested in animal behavior, but also couple that with like a local conservation perspective in the eyes of like the fish and wildlife department, it kind of became more clear to me that what I wanted to do was research wildlife species here. Right. So it's interesting uh, that you say that because a lot of people, when you talk about conservation, of course, you know, charismatic megafauna or the, you know, kind of the more fancy famous animals like elephants and pandas and lions always kind of bring, uh, you know, that's what people first think of when you mention conservation. But in the States, right? Like a lot of our, you know, the vast majority of the conservation work that uh, a natural resources scientist or biologist is likely to do is to conserve our own uh, natural resources. But it's also, uh, or would you say that's true? I definitely agree with that. And I mean, going up, growing up, um, you know, I'll be the first to say that I love elephants. They're still to this day my favorite animal. And Chris, I know I volunteered with you in Africa. And those are just like amazing experiences and amazing wildlife to get to be around. But going forward, I also kind of realized that it is so important to do this work in our own country. And there's so much that we can do and so much that is here that's just so fascinating. Definitely. I think, um, you know, I mean, like I, I love uh, what I get to do, but I also did have kind of a, a moment of like inner debate where like, is it wrong for me to try to go do conservation work in a different country when we have conservation issues in the States? So that was actually like, you know, an inner, inner debate. But uh, you brought up, you know, that we, you know, I met you uh, when you were volunteering in South Africa when I was over there to do my master's work, um, and you did some research over there, right? Yeah, I did. Did right. a little bit of like body condition scoring with the ungulates that were on the Lule Nature Reserve. Okay. Do we want to talk about that a little bit? Um, as I mean that. So, or I guess a better question would be, did you have any kind of hands-on research experiences in your undergrad uh, aside from that? So for most of my undergrad, I actually worked in aquatic ecology. So I volu or I guess I was an undergraduate research assistant. So it was my job 
to help with the field work of this aquatic ecology project throughout the school. Um, I guess not throughout the school, within the biology department. Um, but that project was a part of the San Joaquin River Restoration Project, and it was this big grant that was put forth to kind of restore salmon populations through this pretty dilapidated river that goes through Central California. So that was my first real experience with fieldwork, and I had my own independent research that I looked at different stable isotopes with the water in the river as you kind of go downstream, how that might change and how conditions on the river change with that, um, which really got me interested in research. But also working and volunteering at the zoo at the same time, I fell in love with these exotic animals and became fascinated with Africa and African ecology. So part of what I was kind of trying to do to explore that was volunteering in South Africa um, that summer and getting just a totally different conservation approach. And that was just a really great experience. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I had, uh, I, I remember you telling me what you had been working on previously when we first met and just to hear you describe it again. I mean, when I hear California and, you know, central California, I do not think salmon. Um, and that's, that's probably part, you know, that's a, yeah. that's, a cons that's a consequence of the problem, right? Exactly. Um. <laughs> and there's a lot of different kind of human wildlife, I don't want to say conflicts, but interactions that need to be mitigated in order to benefit the huge agricultural system that we have there and also maintain that important biodiversity for this subspecies of Chinook salmon. Right. But it's usually not what people think when they think of Central California and bodies of water and working in bodies of water in Central California can present its own challenges. <laughs> but uh, but you sounded busy uh, between all of that work and then seeking out a, a volunteer um, opportunity. Now, so I was over there for my master's and, you know, it kind of worked like, uh, that was just a, a research opportunity that was presented to me. So of course I was going to take it, but what drove you to pursue a research opportunity, like on the other side of the world? Like, had you traveled much? Um, you said, you know, you've been fascinated with African animals and probably had some experience in a zoo. Um, uh, but what, what, what was really kind of like the driving force behind you taking that opportunity? Um, I think it was a combination of a lot of different things. Um, first of all, just some of my most favorite animals at the time, and I guess still to this day, were those species. So it had always been kind of a dream of mine to see them in the wild, and especially with dwindling numbers of elephants and rhinos, that was something that I had this like feeling that you know, beyond my lifetime, people might not get to see these animals as readily in the wild. So if I was going to see them, it made sense to do something that would also kind of be on my career pathway. But also working at the zoo, I got to learn a lot about different conservation efforts that were being done all over the world, including projects that did that on the ground research, much like what you were doing and much like 
some of the other research that the organizations like Elephants Alive and other people in Africa were doing at the time. And I always just thought how amazing it would be to get to be a part of something like that, where you can work with these species that really need the research and really need the help from all components of it. And I also really like the approach that um, Balule and Craig Spencer over there were doing with the Black Mambas, where the conservation work that they're doing was very community-centered and really involving the people who are most impacted by these wildlife species presence. So it was just an all-around really good thing that kind of combined my interests with, you know, public engagement in conservation, research, and also just like a lifelong dream to get to study these animals and be around them. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, um, There's a lot of dig in there. Um, Yeah. You know, as much as like, as much as it was a hectic uh, working conditions, we can say that, uh, especially at the time, uh, I'm glad that you still have fond memories of, of, being able to do that. And I think, you know, it makes me happy to hear that you were, in my opinion, thinking about it the right way of kind of professionally advantage uh, or professional advantage, you know, contributing and wanting to engage with the right people. Um, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people aren't necessarily thinking that way. They're kind of just thinking what's best for me. Um, but yeah, and, you know, having survived that, situation i remember thinking you know uh not survive not not trying to say it's like you know a war zone or anything it's like just <laughs> just I mean, a lot of encounters with lions felt like we were surviving <laughs> but you know just like difficult people put in difficult situations and you know in a remote area far from home i just kind of i always say like if somebody can survive and excel in that scenario then They've got a, a bright future ahead of them in the, if they want to continue in research. Um, so I guess before we move on from this, um, you said you were looking at the body condition scores of the ungulates. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Like not, we don't need to go in depth, uh, but just a little bit. Yeah. So at the time that I was there, um, South Africa was in a drought. Granted, it wasn't as bad as what is kind of making global news now or has been within the past year where like Cape Town was getting close to running out of water. So it wasn't quite to that scale, but it was still drought conditions that were suspected to be affecting the wildlife. And so we were trying to kind of assess whether or not these herds were getting adequate nutrition and sustaining themselves during this bad drought. And so what we did with that was just kind of scan herds as we saw them. Um, We sampled animals from different digestive types, I believe, or different, just overall different sizes of the animals. So we had some small um, ungulates, medium-sized, and I believe we included hippos also. But that was something that we were able to kind of use that data and generate a summary for the warden's report. Right. Yeah, I remember that that drought was crazy. Uh, I think regional regionally, it's probably still the worst in recorded history. But yeah, South Africa's just been 
smothered with drought these these last couple of years, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I remember that even that even that drought was severe enough to influence the rodent populations there. So that was that was pretty crazy. Um, but from there, you re- you returned home triumphantly uh, <laughs> after having survi- survived uh, South Africa in those conditions. Um, and then, what was what was it like for you? Were you able to just find uh, a position easily? Because a lot of people have trouble um, in the transitional periods between you know, undergrad and graduate school or even master's and, and PhD? Or I guess a better question would be, did you know that you, at that moment you really wanted to pursue a graduate degree uh, after your first kind of solo, unsupervised research experience? So I did know that I wanted to pursue a graduate degree. I guess once I decided to go into the wildlife field, all of my mentors that I had who had experience in the field basically from the start told me that I was almost always going to need a master's to be able to do what I wanted. So that was kind of always in the game plan for me. Um, Returning from Africa, I, you know, obviously loved the experience, but as you know, it's difficult to be all the way across the world and still focus on your own things while being mindful of like friends and family that are back home So thinking about it more, as much as I loved being over there, um, I kind of decided that I did want to pursue things that were at least within the United States and knew that eventually I did kind of want to have the opportunity to do research with large mammals. And I know that's what almost everybody who goes into the field wants to work with large mammals. It's kind of that charismatic avenue. But for me, it kind of stemmed from working with species that have these really interesting social and breeding behaviors. So I kind of just decided that I did want to work with deer in some respect. Um, I wasn't sure exactly where I wanted to go in my career pathway, but working with deer seemed like a pretty good option given that I could do this kind of behavioral research that I wanted to and look at things more from like a biology, physiology perspective with them. But at the same time, I could also work with a species that was pretty widespread and also pretty consistent and pretty well managed for in most parts of the US. So it was something that I looked for in applying to positions was trying to work on projects that would give me these kind of wide array of opportunities and it was not the easiest process to go about finding a graduate program. Um, I wish I had been told just how often you get rejection emails or sometimes even just get ghosted by advisors, which is really unprofessional. If there's any advisors listening, please don't do that to poor students applying to your program. Um, But at the time, having grown up in California and never lived anywhere outside of the Central Valley of California, I had made up in my mind that I was like, not going to go any farther east than maybe Arizona, New Mexico, (laughs) like I'd consider Colorado, but, you know, maybe Texas, my brother lives in Texas. So I was like, okay, that's the farthest east I'm going to go like, outside of that, it's just too different. Like, I don't think people on the east coast or like in the south or 
really anywhere outside of California like Californians, so I just don't think I can do that. <laughs> and I was wrong, because that did not end up happening. Um, I had been applying for at least like three or four months to graduate programs, kind of within that like Western state setting that I was thinking I needed. And then I saw this ad pop up on Texas A&M's um, wildlife job board for this position at Auburn. And it kind of checked all those boxes for the things that I was wanting in a program. And I guess the major drawback to me at the time as, you know, a 22 year old from California was that I had to move to Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> right. I can imagine that's pretty, that's a pretty wild uh, transition from California to Alabama. Um, but yeah, I guess for anybody that's listening and wants to find a graduate position, the Texas, uh, what Texas A&M e Ecology Job Board is definitely the, the first place to, to look. Uh, but yeah, it's, in, it's interesting, you know, so many people want to work with large animals, as you said, large mammals, especially in the States, you know. And I think the most competitive of those positions are likely to be exactly where you were looking, right? Because um, yeah. a lot of the people uh, that are drawn to this kind of work also love the outdoors for their hobbies, right? Hunting, fishing, hiking, photography, everything. So, I mean, you know, being from the Midwest myself, I really – I kind of early on learned that I wouldn't really have control over where I went or what I did for the next 15 years of my life at least. Um, <laughs> but so I kind of didn't even aspire to want to work out West. But if I, if I had that sort of, you know, kind of willpower, I would have tried to look for more positions out there. But uh, yeah, no. So you found the, the right fit. Um, what, what made you realize that that was like the right decision for you? Um, so in a certain, at a certain point, you kind of just decide something like it's hard to even know if anything is going to be perfect for you. But, you know, after talking to my now advisor, Steve Ditchkoff on the phone, I realized that like our personalities seemed to mesh pretty well. I could see myself working with him and, you know, he had really high expectations of his graduate students, which is something that I wanted to make sure I was being pushed. Um, granted graduate school is difficult, basically any avenue that you decide to go through it. But I think it's really important when you're looking for a program and making that choice that you can see yourself working with that advisor and, you know, your communication styles fit and areas that you want to grow in and feel like you need to grow in, that person is able to help you in. Right. I'm, yeah. I asked that question because I think a lot of people don't know exactly what they're looking for in a mentor or, or something like that, you know, and it's a, it's a decision that will shape the at least next two, if not more years of your life. Uh, likely more if you, you know, continue on. Definitely. Um, his interview with me, I was waiting around all day for it, just nervous as heck in my dorm room as an undergrad. And then it ended up being this 15 minute conversation. And he was like, okay, I'll let you know in like 
less than five days what I choose. So from the start, he's a pretty no-nonsense person, which was a little intimidating. Um, and that's kind of the feel that I think he gives off to a lot of people. But I also knew that that's kind of what I wanted. Um, that sort of like tough on you, but going to congratulate you when you deserve it and correct you when you need it. I didn't want any kind of, I didn't want to be able to fall under the radar and just skim by. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole smattering of, of, uh, different personality types in academia. You know, it's, we're often portrayed as, uh, only workaholics, very distant, no social skills, whatever, you know, scientists or academics specifically. But there are some extremely hands-off advisors that will just let you fall and then, well, it's your, it's your responsibility as a graduate student to handle this and that, that's not something you want either. So I'm glad you were able to kind of tell pretty early in, the, in your interview process that this is exactly where you wanted to be. Um, so I guess what, so you just finished your, your master's, congratulations, by the way, and you're moving Thank into you. your PhD. What, could you give us a little bit of a, a background on what the research setup was for you? Cause I think you have a pretty unique research setup from what I've seen. And what were some of the questions you were trying to answer in your master's uh, program? Yeah, so our, I guess I'll start off by kind of describing the facility because it kind of caters to the type of research that we do. Um, we have, one of our research sites is located about like 30 minutes away from Auburn. And it is a high fence facility that has about 430 acres of um kind of combination pine and hardwood forest in addition to some food plots that are there for the deer. And that fence was put up in 2007. And since then, there's been really extensive darting efforts um, to capture all the deer that are within this fence and a lot of population monitoring. So we basically knew or know most of the individuals, if not all of the individuals that are living within this fence and sustain this herd, but they still interact with each other in a wild manner. They're not tame deer. Um, they still kind of come and go as they please within the fence, obviously. Um, so these individuals receive tags when we dart them. And then for our males, we try to dart them every single year and collect data on their new set of antlers every year, as well as body size. Um, we also collect blood from them so with that kind of comes in my master's research where I was looking at testosterone in these deer. And then ultimately, our big goal for this study site is to look at factors that determine reproductive success in white-tailed deer. So because of the genetic samples that we get from these individuals, we can establish a pedigree of who is the father to which individuals and who's the mother to which individuals and kind of compare that to what their physical and physiological characteristics were in those years when they had those offspring. So some of the research that has come out of the facility has kind of related, you know, antler size and body size to number of offspring sired within a year. Um, there's also been some genetic analyses that have looked at um, 
innate like genetic immunity through the major histocompatibility um, region of the genome, which is really fascinating stuff. Um, but my research was utilizing a 10-year data set looking at testosterone in all of these deer. So for a master's research, it's pretty hard to come by that much data. And that was a huge selling point for me was that I would have this kind of long-term data set that really I didn't have to use any of the data that I collected in the time that I've been here. All of it was collected. Yeah, I think just about every sample was collected prior to me actually getting to Auburn. That is pretty, pretty sweet. Um, yeah, I, I noticed that when I was looking through the the manuscript of your, because I think you shared it on Facebook not too long ago. Like, here's our research. Um, yeah, my thesis got put up through the grad <laughs> school. <laughs> no big deal. Um, but yeah, so so I was looking through that and I was like, 10 years of data, that's pretty slick for a, a master's student. Um, so just to go back and like clarify a few things. So it's basically... How large did you say this area is? It's 430 acres. So okay. I believe that's pretty close to a little over a square mile. Okay. And it's got a, a high fence. So how, how tall is this fence? It is about eight feet tall. So it's tall enough to keep any deer from outside of this population coming in or our deer that are within the fence that are our research deer from going out. Okay, because I think a lot of people, especially in the States, are kind of unaware that these facilities exist. Sorry, um, you know, yours is specifically research-based, but there are also some in, like, the private uh, servid industry, uh, which is yeah, a whole different conversation. <laughs> it's a whole different conversation. But it, I just think it's crazy that you guys pretty much have tabs on the entirety of this, every individual in this population, right? Yeah, um, at least most of the adults, there's a little bit of, I guess, leeway with how much information we have because we can't actually collect the data on the individuals until they're old enough to be darted. So we start sampling basically from when these individuals are a year and a half of age. Um, okay. So we don't really know data on exactly how many fawns a mother had in a year. Um because there is the chance that some of them might not survive to that age. But when you look at it in terms of like overall recruitment into a population, that would happen normally in any natural setting. So we still kind of are measuring what's going on with the adult herds of white-tailed deer. Right. And so um, let's see, I, just, I had another question. Uh, shoot. Sorry, I'm blanking. But um Oh, 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 predators. Are there any predators within uh, this fenced area? There are not any predators. So these deer kind of live in like a best case wild scenario. Um, we do provide supplemental feeding, and that's something that's very important for our research with antler and body size. Um, mm -hmm. Because nutrition can limit those things on a year-to-year -year basis, and, you know, different weather patterns can affect vegetation, and as a result, deer condition from year to year by providing that supplemental feeding and not having predators within the facility it kind of gives these deer a level playing field to express their best genetic potential kind of despite the environmental circumstances 
So it lets us compare and aggregate these data over such large amounts of time. Right. Okay. So that's, I mean, it's a pretty incredible feat to even be able to put up that much fencing. Um, <laughs> just the, the practicality aspect of it, not let alone the actual research. But uh, so what were your, like, specifically you, what were your driving questions? And then how did you go about kind of answering them? Because you've, so, you've, so, so you've mentioned like darting and stuff, but I kind of, you know, that's, we're going to get there. That's got to be the like most exciting part, right? <laughs> but, I agree. We, but we got to have the we got to have the questions. We can't just be shooting animals for fun. You know? Yes. Yes. Um, so my research questions were looking at just overall annual patterns of testosterone in these deer. Um, I I guess it's kind of a unique thing to Alabama. We have a pretty late breeding season. Um, generally in the south and the southeast, um, deer here will breed a little bit later than in other regions, but in our part of Alabama and throughout most of the state, it's actually up to like two, two and a half months later than even deer that, you know, live within Georgia, right, right across the border. Um, and that's kind of a result of some management decisions that were made in the 1960s where, um, you know, there weren't as strict of regulations on bag limits, or I guess not bag limits, but just overall limits for harvesting deer and hunting them. So a lot of the populations in the U.S. actually declined to a point where people were not having huntable deer populations. So in order to fix that, there was a lot of restocking that went on at the time. And generally states tried to repopulate deer, um, deer herds with other deer that were from within their state borders. And in Alabama, they decided to choose deer that were from this very, very southern region of the state down in the Gulf. And this population that they did most of the restocking from has this very seasonally late breeding period um, that's pretty unique. And it's thought to be like an adaptation to spring floods that happen a lot there. So going back to our research questions, um, these patterns of testosterone throughout the year hadn't really been described in this late breeding population. So that was something we wanted to look at. Um, just a little bit of a background on how testosterone can change throughout the year. It kind of goes with the antler cycle of deer. So leading up to when they're going to have the peak of their reproductive season, or a lot of people call it the rut, um, that's when testosterone is going to be the highest. And that kind of leads into the final stages of antler development and also helps out with that breeding aggression that deer can be so famous for where they're competing with other males. Um, but since our breeding season was so much later, we wanted to see how these patterns might be different. So that was kind of the first thing that I was looking at. Okay. I don't and know so if there's anything I need to clarify. No, I'm just, uh, so like testosterone is, is the stereotypically male hormone, even though it's present in females as well. Um, and I think we're going to get deeper into this, but really it's kind of looking at the associations between this uh, stereotypically male hormone uh, and male behavior of deer in the breeding season, right? I'm just trying to break it down. 
yeah. to the simplest form. Um, and then how that is, I guess, uh, affected by environmental conditions, right? Yeah, so testosterone can change a lot with, you know, just the stress that an individual is under, um, time of year, how old they are. There's a lot of different factors that can play into it. So that was something else we wanted to kind of categorize how it changed with age and also relate this to different characteristics that we were measuring on these deer, such as antler size and body size and offspring production within a given year. Okay. Okay. And then what was, what, or was that all of your, your research questions or did, did you have more? Um, I think one, some of the stuff that I find most exciting is that because we have this really long-term setup here, we get to look at the same deer as they go through almost their entire lives. So there's some deer that we have captured six times throughout their life um, just by having this kind of continual darting effort throughout the fall and the spring. And a lot of times when you monitor individuals and look for, I guess, differences between individuals in a population, um, they're done in a very controlled like lab setting or captive setting where you're able to know these individuals and track them throughout their lives. It's not very easy to do that in a totally free roaming wild population because the odds of you capturing the same deer multiple times um, over the course of multiple years, I would imagine is extremely low. So there's not a lot of research in that avenue, um, kind of longitudinally looking at different factors like this. Right. It's, it's one thing to set up like a capture, mark, recapture experiment with rodents, but it's a different thing to do it with deer. Uh, but that, that's pretty amazing that you guys I have that level of resolution over time uh, on that population is pretty wild to me. Um, but yeah, so, okay, so those were your questions. And then, you know, what were some of the steps you took in, into exploring these questions or what kind of methodology did you employ? So I guess the first thing to all of this, you know, we wouldn't have this data without the darting efforts that we do. So we have like a huge team of largely undergraduate volunteers who come out with us. They dedicate one night a week to come out to our facility, put themselves up in a tree stand, um, hopefully sit really still and be quiet and <laughs> wait for the deer to come up to their stand. And then they dart them um, pending a successful capture and successful darting, um, we get these deer, collect all the data, and then take it back to the lab. Um, since it is such a long-term research project, there's often data that we collect that we're not exactly sure what it's gonna be used for, um, but that's kind of just part of being in a long-term research facility is that you know no one had really done anything with this blood and hormone data uh, until I got here, basically. So, you know, for those 10 years, if that data wasn't collected, I wouldn't have had a project. So right. <laughs> there's a lot of data that goes on that is not directly related to your project. And, you know, you're kind of doing it for the future researchers that will come into the lab. But once I got here and kind of settled upon what my research questions were going to be, 
Um, I got to do a lot of lab work. So it's kind of the stereotypical scientist stuck in a lab thing that we were talking about earlier. Um, we did hormone extraction from these blood samples that we had, and then we ran them through a test kit for ELISAs. So that's an abbreviation for enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays, um, which is very long acronym that probably means nothing to most people. But um, basically, it's these little plastic plates that are like rectangular, and each sample has its own little spot on this plate. And through this long process of chemical reactions, you're able to measure testosterone from these ELISA tests. So spent a lot of time <laughs> figuring out you know, what would and wouldn't work to process these samples. Um, the manufacturer that we bought these kits from generally used these kits, I believe, on like livestock research. So hadn't really been done in deer and we kind of had to make some adjustments to the protocol to make it work best for us. And after many months of doing that, finally got all that data and then spent a lot of time data crunching and running all the numbers and then eventually writing my thesis and going through with all that, <laughs> which is a very quick way to describe like years of effort <laughs> and trial and error. I was going to say, we're going to have to delve into this a little bit more uh, piece by piece, but <laughs> I guess let's uh, backtrack to like data collection, right? And for you, for you guys, that would be the darting process of these deer. Um, I just, I mean, I can't imagine how cool that must be or how much fun that must be uh, to do. Could you talk about that a little bit of like what an average darting experience is? And you don't have to go in depth on the necessarily like the chemical concoction that you guys use because I know there's there's different ones for different uses, different species, different preferences of whoever's doing the darting. Uh, just, I mean, just in general, not necessarily with you guys, but, and then kind of, you know, how successful are you guys usually when you go out for a night trying to dart deer? And then what is the process when somebody actually does shoot a deer with a tranquilizer dart? And, you know, how do you go about getting the data that you need? Yeah, so we, our, our afternoons, I guess, pretty much start around 2.30. That's when we pack up and head out to the facility and we get out there and we have the dart guns. Um, I like to have my volunteers do at least one or two practice shots every day. Um, you know, dart guns are pretty accurate, but sometimes they're a little finicky where you bump them just the wrong way and they might not be shooting right again. So we always make sure that we're checking them and that it's going to be in a place where it is the safest scenario for our animals and for our darters. Um, so we'll get them ready, and then about 30 minutes before sunset, at the latest, we typically put them up in these tree stands. So um, for the ones that we have, they're ladder stands, so it's like a 15-foot tall ladder with a chair attached to the top of it that these um, volunteers climb up and then just basically post up there. Um, since we do a lot of supplemental feeding of this population, we actually dart them over bait piles. So it makes it a little bit easier. Um, the dart guns really don't shoot that far. Um, at least how we have them set up, it's about 
15 yards is sort of the sweet spot for how far away these animals need to be. And we just hope that our undergraduates kind of stay off their phones and stay nice and quiet and that the deer, you know, don't smell them and actually come in. Um, it sounds like a pretty simple setup, but as soon as we get out there and we start having crews out there every night, deer can actually be pretty sensitive to our presence out there. So it is really important that we are trying our best to kind of conceal ourselves and conceal our scents. Um, I always make sure that our undergrads are dressed in kind of like neutral colors, camos kind of best, but deer can really only see yellow and blue. So we've had some volunteers straight up show up in like blue jeans and like yellow clothes and we have to like scour the closets that we have at this facility to try to get them covered up properly. Um, so we'll have them sit there. I have the fun task of going back and waiting in the office that we have at our facility. And I just wait to get a text message from one of our volunteers saying that they darted a deer. Um, I think a lot of people also think that darts immediately have an effect on the animal. Um, I've had students text me and they're like, the deer ran away after I darted them. I don't think it worked. It takes about 10 minutes for that drug to kick in. So they can run pretty far um, in that time. So I wait about 10 or 15 minutes usually, and then I will go drive out there and pick that student up. And from there, the darts actually stick into the deer and stay in their hindquarters. Um, with those darts, there's a little antenna on it, or rather a transmitter that is within the dart itself. And we can use a radio telemetry antenna to locate where these deer are at. So that's technology that's pretty common in a lot of wildlife research is VHF telemetry. So you have this big antenna that you're walking throughout the woods holding in your hand and listening to all these beeps. And the louder that the beeps get, the closer the deer is. Um, sometimes the deer go down pretty close to the feeder. Sometimes they're really nice and fall down in a road for us. Um, <laughs> other times they're in the worst possible ditch that is insanely difficult to get a signal on them and we end up walking around for quite a bit. Um, then from there, we usually have to drag the deer out to a place that is accessible to our vehicles. Um, so we'll put them in a little drag bag or a sled and lug them up the hill or to wherever the closest road is. And then we collaborate a lot with the Auburn Vet School. So we'll move them to a place that is easiest for the vet school to get to us to do the research that they need on these animals and then kind of go throughout the whole data collection process. Wow. But, so it's yeah, like a whole. That's a perfect night, and it doesn't always go perfect. It's like a whole alien abduction scenario for them. You know, they're just kind of going to their local restaurant, and then all of a sudden, there's a, a foreign entity from above, you know, shoots them, and then they run away, and the world goes black, and then all of a sudden, you're waking up, you know, 50 yards away from where you fell down. I can't yeah. imagine. <laughs> yeah, I but, can't either. I mean, it's kind of the rent they pay for living a luxury life and not being in a hunted population. But some of the deer who we know we've captured multiple times get a little smart to it. And they know that they, certain times a year when certain people are around, 
may be more likely to get shot in their hindquarters. So they'll go up to the feeders and hide, hide their butts behind the feeders to try not <laughs> to get shot. That's so some of funny. them catch on to it. <laughs> we just have to outsmart the deer, which can be so, trickier than a lot of people imagine sometimes. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, if it, that's, you know, uh, that's why it's called hunting and not killing deer. But um, yes. like, so, but do you ever get to dart them yourself? Or are you just kind of the res- first responder? Um, I'm usually just the first responder, but one thing that I really appreciate about all of my colleagues that I've gotten to work with, um, we all take turns leading darting nights, but a lot of times, you know, sometimes undergrads are not able to make it, they get sick, have a big midterm the next day, and that's when I get to go out and do the fun part. So if anyone needs fill-in spots, um, I'll get to sit up there and dart. Or on nights that we're a little short-staffed, I will sit up in the tree stand and try to dart one myself before any of my other undergraduates do. Um, So I could sit up there basically until I get a text message that someone darted one and I need to get down and go help them find it. Right. I just can't imagine never, you know, never having the, never being there and just knowing that it's all going on. Sorry, uh, yeah. you know, kind of around you. But, uh, yeah, no, no that's, I mean, that's like the most fun part. So I always enjoy getting to go out and do it. It sounds like you guys have a pretty well-oiled operation. Um, but one question I had, so this population of deer, um, so are they, people are not around the vast majority of the time, even though you guys sometimes do supplemental feeding, right? Yeah, um, they're, like, used to seeing vehicles driving throughout the facility. We have people who will, like, come and seed the hay fields and mow them down eventually when they grow out and that sort of thing and fill the feeders. But we really don't have any interaction with these deer besides that. So even when you're driving around, they generally book it when they see a vehicle and book it when they see people. Okay. Yeah, okay. I was just curious. Um, you know, <laughs> but, uh, were some of the results that you guys found in, the, in this investigation and I guess kind of why were they significant? You know, so or why we, should people, why should people care? Yeah. <laughs> not, not not me saying not me saying that as it might sound, but you know what I'm saying. Like, you know, yeah, somebody's no, probably that's like, always the first question that like anybody outside of your stereotypical kind of science nerd or even like deer nerd, it's always like, why should we care about this? Why do we really care about the physiology of this species that we're managing for? Right. Um, that's always the, the cliche. That, that's what I was trying to get at. It probably did not sound that way, but I was trying to get at is like people always use the cliche of like, why are we trying to get uh, to understand, as Craig always says, like the the one eyed newt, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so some of the findings that we found um, was just kind of differences in these hormonal patterns, as I mentioned, in this late breeding population. So we found that peak testosterone is occurring 
during the peak of the rut, despite whether or not that is happening in November or late January, like it is for our population. Um, and kind of just big picture why we should even care about any of this. I think from the management perspective, I hear this word science-based management, this phrase, I guess, um, I don't want to say get thrown around a lot, but it gets used quite a bit and it can almost seem like a buzzword. And I think it's important to realize that, you know, the more science and the more research that we're doing just to understand these species that, you know, we manage, the more we can kind of tailor these management strategies to best fit the species physiology. So like a lot of the current you know, wildlife management laws are based off of research, just like basic biological research on these species that was done way before now. So the more we're kind of contributing to this knowledge base, I think the better we can make informed decisions, you know, as we go forward and try to have this holistic approach to wildlife management. And kind of taking another further step back, um, why we should care about deer as a whole they are a very lucrative game species in the U.S. It's the most widely hunted species in the U.S. And those hunting licenses and, you know, Pittman-Robertson Act funds that are generated as a result of people who want to go deer hunt can generate a lot of money for conservation. And that money can not only benefit just white-tailed deer, but benefit a lot of other endangered species whose numbers are far lower and need this research and on the ground efforts from our fish and wildlife system. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't uh, understand um, how that funding mechanism works. Uh, I mean, we're going to talk about all the significance, but this is just a easy transition. I think a lot of people don't understand how, how that funding mechanism works. And, you know, I'm not an expert, but uh, w consumptive use exercises like hunting and fishing absolutely guaranteed generate revenue that is has to legally be put back into wildlife management and conservation. Uh, so I'm, I appreciate you bringing up that point uh, about that. Um, but yeah, man, it's all, it's, I thought your research is very interesting because there are, there are always a lot of questions about, you know, like, why do deer drop their antlers? How does testosterone go into it? And you hear all these kind of like, I don't, the cliche is not the urban legends about these things. Like, how, why does this deer have bigger antlers than the other deer? Oh, it's because he ate this rock this one time and it had minerals in it, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that stuff, it, it couldn't be more important. Uh, and especially, kind of circling back to what we talked about at the very beginning of the episode, you know, a commitment to managing uh, species that we have in our own country appropriately, um, I think is important, you know, if, I don't know if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I definitely agree. <laughs> it should <laughs> be prioritized. Right. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, you just, that was your master's and you just finished that uh, and you're, could you tell us about like what your next step was from there? So I, about a year, a little over a year ago, started, you know, really seriously thinking about going into a PhD program. Um, 
going into my master's, I supposedly had decided that I was not going to get any more education after my master's. This was it. I was done. Um, kind of the same thing, like where I decided I was going to go to school at didn't happen the way I thought it was going to. <laughs> um, so I kind of neared the end of my project and was working with the data that we had. And it's just really exciting getting to look at all of these data um, and look at it from a perspective of this, these deer changing throughout their entire lifetimes. And that whole lifetime approach, as I mentioned previously, isn't looked at a lot. So that was a very exciting opportunity for me that I was able to include some of those analyses in my master's, but it's it wasn't as much as I was interested in. I knew there were a lot more questions that I had with this data set that I felt like, you know, given the time, we could answer some pretty interesting things. So I guess about last summer, I approached my advisor about it and kind of just told him, you know, there's a lot of ideas that I still have and like, I know you designed this research facility to kind of have a myriad of questions that we can continually ask for this research. But, you know, I have some questions that I'd really like to answer. And I, you know, have felt like I've done pretty well in this environment. I really like what I do here. And I think I would like to stay on. So he kind of explained to me the process of, you know, what what would be different, what would be similar for me as a PhD student versus me as a master's student. And, you know, after a few months of like talking about it with other people, talking about it with him more, I decided that it would be the best route for me to stay in this environment and continue on with research where I got to look at um, kind of like an ecology and evolution perspective of these large mammals. Um, but at the same time, also still build my management knowledge and management-based research skill set by getting to work with other side projects that my advisor was going to have available throughout the time of me being here. Right. I mean, you just went and pa pulled a power move. You're just kind of like, you know what? Uh, I kind of know a lot about this. You kind of need somebody who knows a lot about this. I'm pretty good at it, by the way. And uh, <laughs> It came off a lot more powerful than it was. What really happened was that I brought it up to um, <laughs> my advisor's research associate who worked with me a lot out at our research facility and is also my advisor's like right-hand man. So I brought it up to him floating the idea like more of a nonchalant way. And I was like, yeah, I think I think I'll talk to Steve about this. Like that'll be my next move. But I wasn't going to do that for a little bit until I get called into my advisor's office. And he was like, yeah, Chad ratted you out. He told me that you were wanting to stay for a Ph.D. <laughs> so it comes across more of a power move. It kind of was just me sitting there like, yeah, I, I just didn't think it was the right time to ask you yet. Yeah. Hey, I'm just glad it, it worked out well for you. I mean, a lot of people uh, don't have that opportunity to be able to keep, you know, continue or yeah to continue pursuing something that they're like that passionate about and, and you seem to be very interested in, in the particular questions that you're able to to pursue and also I mean who can leave a 10-year data set like that I mean he just that was just smart 
Yes, I'm I'm extremely fortunate to continue to work here. Um, But, you know, it is pretty common for people to go to different universities and even study stuff that's totally different from their master's. Um, One thing that's kind of like a funny term that at least got thrown around to me, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but academic inbreeding is something that you try to avoid. So that was, um, it's basically like a funny term for just kind of like staying in the same place, doing your research in the same place and not getting different perspectives from doing different types of things. Yeah. Um, um, so that well, was a concern of mine. Right. Yeah. So academic inbreeding is, is definitely a term that gets thrown around. And I think there's some validity to it. You know, like you can't stay at the same institution for all three degrees. But I think if you get two in one place, especially if it's kind of well, you know, any two at one place should be fine. Who knows more about what you're doing than, than you? Uh, probably not many people, right? And that's kind of what makes you the most qualified. But then again, you know, the, on the opposite side, uh, as you said, you can't just be around the same people doing the same things the whole time because then you become kind of habituated to that scenario and you, it makes it harder for that person to adapt but all of that said, like nobody's really, nobody's really not academically inbred because academia is so insular and so many. <laughs> I don't want to use a, <laughs> yes. throw out a buzzword here. There's so many entanglements um, amount, around the uh, <laughs> different people. For example, it's like my. Let's see. I got my master's position because I helped a PhD student do her research. Then somebody on my master's committee uh, had the same advisor during his graduate uh, experience as my undergraduate advisor did. And then my PhD advisor is friends with my master's advisor. So it's all just nobody can escape the intake. You have to work really hard if you want to escape entanglement and yeah you're probably at any like wildlife field it's such a small world even though it doesn't feel like it sometimes like I know I I came to Auburn and I met somebody who had volunteered at Balule a year before I had (laughs) (laughs) and like knew all the same people that we knew during that time and then currently yeah so currently I have an office mate who just finished up his undergraduate degree at University of Arizona and he actually took some classes with Dr. Kaprowski who I believe is your (laughs) advisor currently right yep yep so it's such a weird small world which is very great sometimes but also a little scary yeah well, that, that is kind of spooky. I mean, we've got all kind of like three facets of research in here, you know, that like uh-huh. volunteer. <laughs> oh, geez. But uh, wow, that's that's kind of spooky. Let's move on from that. Max, how's your foot bath doing? Oh, no reply. I wonder if he's been, uh, if his microphone's still acting up. He's been, uh, he's been doing a foot bath this whole, this whole podcast episode. I did not said know he w- that. You guys didn't yeah. say that before we started recording. He said he wouldn't let it interfere with his work, so I gave him the benefit of the doubt. Can you guys hear me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I was really hoping you were going to forget about that. 
Um, oh, I, I never forget, Max. It has been phenomenal. It's a little foot spa. Um, filled it up like a little bit before we started recording. And yeah, Chris, it has not interfered with the podcast yet so far. So you know what? I'm just going to keep on rolling with it. <laughs> you know what? I'll, I'll let it slide. Oh, as, important. As, as the captain of this ship, I'll let it slide. Thank you. And I just want to let you know my feet have like never been softer. It is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so Max, do you have any questions after this? Uh, I really just have. I got, yeah, I, I got two questions, I guess. Um, so for the uh, deer enclosure, how many? How many? Like, wh- what's the the size of the population? Uh, we like generally have a. Yeah, so we generally have about 100 to 120 deer within the fence at any given time. Um, This population is kind of maintained through natural mortalities that occur, um, especially as the deer age, they tend to just die of natural causes. But we also selectively will remove some of these fawns outside of the fence and just put them outside the facility in order to keep that population number around the same because we certainly don't want it to get too overcrowded um, even though that density is pretty high density of deer um, to begin with we definitely don't want more inside the facility than that absolutely well, that, that is a that is a very decent amount of deer <laughs> especially yes. for like one, one square mile <laughs> just yes. to clear just to clarify how many of those are male out of the or like what's the sex ratio i guess that's really what i'm asking we have about a 50-50 sex ratio, um, okay. which is a little bit different than what you generally see in deer populations that aren't managed. A lot of, you know, landowners out here in the South, since a lot of it is privately owned, a lot of the land out here is privately owned, I should say, um, will manage their land for deer and kind of adjust their deer hunting strategies to best fit the population. So that 50-50 sex ratio is something that kind of allows the social dynamics of this species to um, benefit them the most. It makes it pretty competitive for the bucks to breed. And with that come a whole slew of benefits from having these older mature deer being the ones who are doing most of the breeding of these does. And that can just have like this whole cascading effect of overall population health. Okay, and then uh, I didn't mean to cut Max off, but then I had a, another follow-up, I guess. So when you said, like, removing individuals, those are, like, they can survive, right? Yeah, they can. Um, they're, I know I said fawns, but at the point that we remove them, they are, you know, about the same size as a young deer. Um, so, like, a one-and-a-half-year-old that we would dart is the right. size that we're able to dart them and then remove them outside the fence. Right. I just want to clarify, you know, for your sake, so people don't think you're some kind of monster. Um, yeah, I think we're not removing fawns as soon as they're born and still nursing their mothers and tearing them away like some backwards Bambi scenario. It is it is oh. fine for the population, and these deer are able to survive once we do take them out of the facility. You're not going Spartan on them. And then, <laughs> no. uh, Max, what was your second question? Oh, yeah. Uh, you mentioned that there's no predators for the deer um, in the area. Uh, what wildlife, though, is, is present alongside them? I kind of assume like squirrels and rabbits and, and all that, but 
yeah. Yeah. So inside the fence, um, we have a surprising number of armadillos, which I didn't expect moving to the <laughs> south to see. <laughs> but yeah, there's squirrels, rabbits, um, flying squirrels, which I've had some undergraduates have them land on them while they're up in the tree stands. Oh, wow. That's got to be so uh, cool. I'm super envious of um, raccoons, which also sometimes bother our undergraduates up in the tree stands. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, outside of the fence, normally in this area, though, um, we would have bobcats and coyotes, too. Um, there's actually a pretty large coyote population just outside the fence that you can hear them howling at night kind of riling each other up i can imagine there must be some uh fence line interaction between uh you know predators if not other deer outside the fence yeah um that's something i know was like a future line of research that my advisor is possibly trying to look at um not specifically at my research study site but at another property that we have a graduate student working at was just like overall contact of deer inside of these fenced facilities with outside deer, um, which has some really interesting implications when you look at, you know, diseases like chronic wasting disease and how those can spread by deer having this like nose to nose contact with each other through this fence. That's always the uh, cliche intimacy, you know, the uh, nose rub through the fence. Mm forbidden love <laughs> yeah do you guys have any opossums there i'm sure you do but yes, if we're gonna we ta- if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about you know cute little wildlife we gotta talk about the obabs and the yard angels yes. you know i know i am i feel like a terrible person for excluding north america's only marsupial we do have possums yeah, yeah. for those people that don't know this is going to be my little soapbox for the episode here Opossums, the Virginia opossum, North America's only marsupial. Fantastic, beautiful, great. They eat. Don't the tick number thing is you don't worry about the actual number of ticks because that actual number is way lower than reported. I don't like that study, but they do eat ticks, and so that's a plus. They eat all kinds of things that you would consider pests, and they're entirely harmless. They can't get rabies because their body temperature is too low. Uh, they're just great. Everything about opossums is amazing. It's and great. I definitely appreciate their tick service. No matter the numbers, I get insane amount of ticks when I do field work. So I appreciate any help I can get to <laughs> limit that number. I will say uh, that is one thing that I that I love about uh, living in the in southwest, desert southwest now and then over in South Africa, it's even a little bit uh, – there are still ticks in South Africa, but to me it seems like less than uh, the Midwest. And then especially when I was in Kentucky, it was brutal. So I can't yes. imagine Al- Alabama. Yeah, and so one you know negative aspect of having this higher deer population and the ticks having a pretty intimate association with these deer – is that our area, um, we had a graduate student actually just publish something on this. She looked at ticks for her master's, but we have kind of like a biological reservoir of ticks where these numbers are increased and they see pretty great diversity in tick species out there. So it can be very brutal. I have come back with at least 15 ticks latched onto me at the end of a day. And that was after 
constantly like flicking them off of me as I felt them on me throughout the day. So holy cow, that's crazy. Who knows how many we'd actually have found if I didn't notice them? It's obscene. Right. Yeah. I mean, God. But uh, I think I also have more of an affinity for insects than most people because I get bit way more than anybody else I know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if, if in ticks, but in mosquitoes, they've done research and they found uh, blood type influences how, you know, who they go after. So I have heard that. I, you know, I usually don't get bitten by mosquitoes. I'm going to be honest, I don't really remember my blood type, but I don't get bit by mosquitoes very much. But if I'm the only person around, uh, then they go for Murray. And I've gotten a, a, a slight case of Skeeter fever before, oh. which is a real illness, which I didn't know about. <laughs> what is, uh, what until, is Skeeter fever? Uh, basically, your body will, if you're bitten by enough mosquitoes in a, in a short enough period of time and you're susceptible to this, your body will have like an allergic reaction to all of their saliva. Uh so yep, you kind of I can you, confirm that. <laughs> so you get like a fever and and uh, rash where all the mosquito bites are. I, I took a boat out on this beautiful little lake in Kentucky, just outside Bowling Green, called Shanty Hollow Lake. Nobody knows about it, but I took my boat there. It's the only person around, and then I had no mosquitoes until the sun started to come down, and it was like a half an hour boat ride back to uh, the. Back to the, 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 I mean, it's not really a, it's not a dock, the ramp, the ramp. And then, like, I got out, and then all of a sudden I was like, why am I not cooling down? Oh, starting to get really hot, you know? Oh, why do, why are all these rashes appearing on my body? It's like, oh, they're not rashes. Those were just where I was just assaulted by mosquitoes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, they're uh, unforgiving. The South is just terrible for insects. Yeah, but I mean, it's uh, great for them, bad for the people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, I, I guess that's kind of enough about my my bodily reactions to being, you know, bitten by insects. I don't think people really tuned in to hear that, but um, it's been a great time able to catch up. Uh, and as I said, congratulations for for finishing your master's and moving on to your PhD. Um, and it's been a good time to have you on the podcast. I think people are going to think it's really interesting. I mean, the white-tailed deer is an animal that a lot of people interact with on a, on a daily basis, you know? Uh, as yeah, you said, it's the I most... hope people think it's interesting. They should, right? It's, it's kind of uh, addressing a lot of the questions people probably think about, but don't know how to look up, you know, the correct answer, you know, or don't have access to that kind of data that you do. Um, but I, I appreciate you coming on the show. As I said, we're trying to get back on the right tracks here after a, a short break with the pandemic and everything. And uh, Max, do you have any final questions or anything? Uh, actually, no. Uh, uh, but I, you you explain things very very uh, very well, very accurately too. So no questions here. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me on. I have really enjoyed this and I really like what you guys are doing to kind of make science more accessible to everyone. Well, that's that's the goal. We would, you know, prove science for everybody and give a give a road in to anybody who's interested. Uh, Do you have any closing statements that you'd like to make? 
or any shout outs or anything? Um, I mean, I could be here all day thinking, thanking all of the people who have helped me throughout this very long journey. Um, but I guess if I were to give any advice to anybody who's maybe interested in the wildlife field or not really sure about it, um, take any opportunity that you can get. It doesn't have to be something that you even think you would like to work with or think you want to work with for the rest of your life. And it's okay to kind of figure that out. Um, also, imposter syndrome is very real. And I know personally as a um, as a Latina in a generally white male dominated field, there can be a lot of, you know, self doubts that arise in yourself because you don't feel like you had a similar background as a lot of people or, you know, growing up not hunting as is the case or as is not the case for a lot of white tailed deer researchers. Um, you know, it's easy to find excuses to let yourself believe that, you know, what you're doing isn't valid and your position that you're coming from is not worthy, but it's really important to surround yourself with the right people who are going to be super encouraging for you, um, listen to you and just have a lot of support. You know, this journey and just grad school and science as a whole can be extremely draining, um, regardless of the field that you're in. So it's always very important to have those people you can lean on. Awesome. Fantastic. I'm glad you said that. Uh, but uh, I'm just, you know, I think that that should be a meaningful statement to to a lot of people. If anybody's in doubt out there, whether or not they can make it or, or they're making the right decision. Yeah. Um, but I appreciate you coming on the show and I'm glad you had a good time because it was a good time for for me and Max, I assume. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, thanks for coming uh, on. We'll have fun. We'll have to have you on um, wh when you're further into your PhD and talk about some of the stuff you're working on then. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I've enjoyed this a lot. Perfect. All right. Well, to everybody who listened, hope you enjoyed the show. If you did or didn't, please just let us know as politely as you can. Uh, if you want to hear from us or you want to be on the show, if you're a researcher or know a researcher or something like that, hit us up on, on social media. We've got the uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, uh, and our email, I believe, is attached to all three of those accounts. And, you know, I hope you had a good time. Thank you for being patient with us when we had to take some time off, and we'll get back on track putting out episodes on a regular basis as fast as we can. All right, till next time.